Our opening text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15. While you are turning there, I wanted to add this, and I wanted to read this out of Ephesians chapter number 4. And in Ephesians 4.14, the Scripture says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Obviously, people being tossed about by every wind of doctrine is not a new concept in uh, today's church, uh, the generation of today's church. It's always been an issue. There's always been a devil who has tried to corrupt Bible doctrine. There's always been the weakness of humanity and the limitations of our personal understanding. And so uh, different doctrines are always going to be a major factor in the church. Now, before we read our opening text, there was a great man of God, I mean, far greater man of God than I'll ever hope to be, who, uh, who started a, a tremendous work, very large congregation, uh, started a Bible college, and if I were to name this man in this college, I guarantee you most of you would know to whom I'm referring. I'm going to leave that aside for now because the person and the place is not the issue. But this particular man of God made a statement repeatedly, and I know this to be so, this isn't hearsay. He said, we don't do doctrine because doctrine divides. We just focus on soul winning. Now, if you go back about 50 years, 75 years, you could get away with that kind of Christianity. Because people already, as a general rule, the church and the Christian culture already had a good foundation of Bible doctrine. And there was a time when people were open and receptive to the gospel message. And people, if you went out and knocked on doors, and if you did personal evangelism, if you did it even halfway decent, you would come back with some results. Because it hasn't been that long ago, some of you that are, uh, are more mature, older Christians, you remember a time when you could witness to people and you'd get some people saved because the Holy Spirit of God was working in our land. We don't see that today. And so, in, in all honesty, some of that mentality of let's build big ministries, let's get more people saved... But let's not focus on doctrine. What we are seeing today, certainly that mentality has contributed to what we're seeing as modern, accepted Christianity in America today. Very watered down, very humanistic, very feeling-oriented. People come to church because they want to just get a good feeling and feel good about themselves and their life. And you know what? I I like to feel good, don't you? But I don't want to feel good at the expense of truth, do you? If somebody tells me something that's just not the whole truth, or sugarcoating it, or certainly twisting it, and it makes me feel good, I don't want to feel good about my good feeling. That was really profound, was it not? 
And so Bible doctrine is of utmost importance. Let's read our opening text, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 15. The Word of God says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I want to speak to you, speak to you this morning on the subject of rightly dividing the word of truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you that we can call upon you in this time of need. We recognize that there are many in the Christian church today that is that are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Lord, you admonished us to rightly divide the word of truth, and I pray, Father, that you would bless us now as we uh, attempt in a short period of time to give a general understanding and foundation on what it means to rightly divide the word of truth. We pray that you would lead us and guide us. Lord, help me to make good use of our time, to not run rabbit trails that don't need to be run. Help me to stay on track and help me to communicate what needs to be communicated clearly and concisely. And Lord, help our attention span today. Help us to, uh, to stay attentive to understand and to retain these things because this foundation is so vital when it comes to understanding our Bible. Bless us and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord showed me here recently on several occasions that I take for granted too often that people know things. You know, there, when I first got right with the Lord, I went straight into Bible school. And I was taught by uh, several really, really good Bible teachers. My father-in-law, Dr. J. Wendell Runyon, fabulous teacher of the Bible. Uh, another gentleman who pastored in Knoxville, who is, uh, both of these men have went home to be with the Lord, but uh, Pastor David Reagan from uh, Knoxville, he would travel over from Knoxville to Asheville one night a week, and he would teach the Bible. And God gave me the privilege as a young preacher boy to be around some very good doctrinal teachers of the Bible. And I'm very thankful for that because I know a lot of preachers don't get a good doctrinal foundation. But because I've known some of these things or been exposed to things for so long, I unfortunately have a tendency to just assume that people know certain things. And God's been speaking to my heart about that as a pastor. My, my pastoral life verse is on the wall behind my desk in my office. It's Jeremiah 2.15. He shall give them pastors after his own heart who shall teach the people knowledge and understanding. My number one priority and responsibility as a pastor is to make sure that I am doing a good job from this pulpit teaching you knowledge and understanding. And I take that responsibility very seriously. We read here that God said specifically, in fact, I believe that God gave us the key. And I have a lot of keys in my pocket, and I imagine you probably do as well. I have a bunch of keys, and you know, I, I have keys aside from what I keep on this key ring. Some of them I keep in my desk, some of them I keep them in my nightstand. And generally, those are keys that when I need them, I need them, but I don't need them very often. The ones that I need frequently, I keep readily available. 
But even within this key ring, there are keys that I use more frequently than others. Of all these keys, I've got a key to the church. I got a key to my office. I got a key, oh, I forgot what this one's too. Must not be that important. Maybe I should take that off. But I got a key to my house, and I probably use this key more often than anything. So that's an important key. God gives us not just an important key to understanding the Bible, but He gives us the key to understanding the Bible. As believers, God expects us to understand His Word. As believers, God expects us to be mature, not children tossed to and fro and believing everything that everybody says. I wonder how many people that are faithful to church in America today, as we speak, are sitting in a church service, and the only thing they really care about is getting a good feeling while they're in that service, either enjoying the music or perhaps maybe the preacher is very funny or entertaining or very folksy that they can relate to. And all of those things are nothing wrong with those emotional aspects. But what is most important is, are we understanding the Bible? Because Jesus said repeatedly, have you not read? Jesus made it clear that he expects his people to understand what his word says. And so as a pastor, I have a responsibility to do the best that I can to help you understand what God means by rightly dividing the word of truth. I find that God is a divider, and truth is more important than unity. Let me say that again, in case you weren't paying close attention. Truth is more important than unity. In the Christian church today... You don't hear very much emphasis on truth, truth, truth. What do you hear? Unity, unity, unity. We just all need to come together. I'm telling you what, folks, that is a very subtle misrepresentation that comes straight from Satan himself. Hey, the Antichrist is going to be a unifier. I'm not saying unity isn't important. I'm just saying that truth is way more important than unity. Never look or expect or accept unity at the expense of truth. God divides the sheep from the goats. God divides the wheat from the tares. I read in 2 Corinthians 6.17, where God says to His people, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord." And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. How about that? God gives us a condition upon a close relationship with Him. He says, I expect my people to be divided from the wicked world that we live in. How often do our Christians all across the land in church today that if you read this particular passage, they'd be going, what? Never heard that before. Well, that must mean something different because I'm pretty happy with living like the world and around the world, and I, I don't want to be weird or different. Hey, God says we're supposed to come out from among them and be separate, and that's just the fact of the matter. How about Luke chapter 12, verse number 51? These are red letters in my Bible. 
where Jesus said, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on the earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division. And then he goes on to say how that because of Jesus, there's going to be a division in a household between a, a, a father and his children, a husband and a wife, and all. There, there's very potential a division in a family, all because of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you did not grow up in a Christian home, and you got saved, and you started living your life and ordering your family according to the principles of God's Word, and you've experienced some of that rejection from parents and grandparents because you don't do the same things that they do. Jesus told us in advance, he said, that's the way it's going to be. I didn't come to make everybody get along and be at peace with one another. He said, I came as a dividing line. Here's Jesus, the dividing line. You got truth on one side. You got unity on the other. Which side are you going to be on? You're going to be on Christ's side or you're going to be on the world side? God is a divider. Now, regarding this phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth, the word dividing does not mean interpreting. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a connection because certainly we're trying to understand the Word of God, but the word interpret and the meaning of interpret is very different than the phrase rightly dividing. Interpreting puts the privileged at an advantage. Hey, you remember uh, Joseph and Daniel that God gave them the, imbil- the ability to interpret dreams from Pharaoh and from Nebuchadnezzar, you know what? They had a privilege to know and understand things that everybody else didn't have. God's not saying to rightly interpret the Bible because interpretation puts a special privilege on the interpreter. He says to study to rightly divide. That means that every single one of us, we all have the privilege and the responsibility to understand the Bible for ourselves. If you are not in the habit of bringing your Bible to church, you need to get in the habit of bringing your Bible to church. Everything that's said from this pulpit from me or anyone else for that matter, you need to be examining it based upon the book that is sitting on your lap, the Bible. You need to make this Bible the most important lifeline in your life. The term divide, secondly, means to separate accordingly. Um, Every now and then, I'll get a fruit basket. Now, in my opinion, not all fruit is the same. I have fruit, and, and, and really, I'm, I'm not a, I eat fruit. Usually when I eat fruit, I enjoy it, but I never pick fruit, not from a tree or from a basket. You give me fruit or a cookie, I'm going to take the cookie every time, unless it's a fruitcake cookie. But, you know, some fruit I like better than others. And so when I get that, that, that fruit basket, I, I kind of go through there and I feel, okay, I like these. I don't care for these. You know, you, you, you start, you get involved in some dividing aspect. 
In Ezekiel 47, verse number 21, the word divide is used in this connotation. So shall ye divide this land unto you according to the tribes of Israel. And so the tribes of Israel, there were 12 of them. And you know, excuse me, when Israel went into the land, God gave certain parameters, but he didn't spell out every detail. You know, Joshua had to lead the children of Israel into that land. And after they got into the land, there were still a lot of battles that had to take place. And there was more land that they had to go and win and so forth. And as they would gain more land or if if someone would pass away, there was always kind of some changes going on in the division of the inheritance of the land for the children of Israel. Remember when David said that the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places? You know what he's talking about? They would go out and they would actually cast lots. And some people, their portion, you know, David and his family would have a certain portion of land. But as sons were born, they would have to divide up that portion of land for each individual son. And so David said, the lines are fallen in pleasant places. I, I, I got a good piece of land here, better than my brother did. And so dividing simply means to separate accordingly. Now, I don't often do this. And let me just preface what I'm getting ready to show you with the fact that I have never tried to impress anyone with a Greek word. I, I don't know Greek. And I don't know Hebrew. I like Greek food. I don't care too much for Hebrew food, other than maybe those Hebrew national hot dogs. Those aren't bad. But I'm going to give you a, a word. You can find this if you have a, 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 a digital Bible or if you have a Strong's Concordance. You can run numbers and you can see what the Greek word is. In 2 Timothy 2.15... There's a Greek word, the term rightly dividing comes from a Greek word, and I'll do the best I can to pronounce it, orthomateo, orthotomate, yeah, I'm murdering it, orthotomeo, orthotomeo, I think that's right. And this is a compound Greek word that comes from two different words, the word orthos, which means upright, and tomateros, which is not those little bitty tomatoes that you pick. But it means to make a straight cut with a single slice. Now, there are, I'll give you a term that I'm going to use here in just a little while. It's the term that the Bible refers to as a dispensation. And perhaps you've heard people say, are you a dispensational or are you not a dispensational? Well, we'll say more about that here in time to come. But a dispensationalist is basically someone who sees different categories in the Bible. Many dispensationalists end up, what I would say, chopping up the Bible. Rightly dividing and the use of the word is not saying chop up the Bible. It would be more like a skillful slice where we are managing, more like a surgeon with a scalpel, not somebody that's just trying to hack the Bible up and throw stuff over in a different category if they don't agree with it or if it doesn't seem to fit in their theological category. So how do we rightly divide 
the word of truth. Now, I'm going to give you several different areas that rightly dividing is important in, more than just dispensations, okay? But before I do that, I want to give you a little bit of background of where we're heading in weeks to come and why this study is so important. I believe that in this day and age that we live in, and things are just going to continue to get crazier and crazier. I believe we see the day approaching. I believe we are in the last days. I believe that we are in the middle of perilous times. I'm not going to make any predictions. That would be foolish. I'm not going to tell you that, well, just any old day, you know, the rapture is going to take place. I hope it does. And I, I would say that we all need to be ready for the rapture. Should I say that again? We all need to be ready for the rapture. Yeah, I, I, I would, would have kind of hoped for a little more hearty amen from that. You know, that is our answer. That's what we're looking for, by the way. The answer to our problems is not a vaccine or an election. The answer is the rapture. And uh, one of these days, the king is coming back to set up his kingdom on this earth. And I believe that we are getting closer and closer. But before that happens, there is, uh, there is a man who's going to show up that the Bible calls the Antichrist. There is a time period coming to this earth known as the tribulation period, Jacob's trouble. And there is so much confusion among God's people. And listen, Wild, crazy doctrines are running to and fro because God's people do not understand the Bible for themselves. How many times have I heard Christians say, well, you know what? We're just going a different direction because we've been studying our Bible. Why don't you just be honest and let everybody know that you've been online watching some crazy preacher that's got some off-the-wall doctrine? Just, just amazes me how that people try to make you think that they came up to the, with these conclusions all on their own. And, um, you know, really what it is is they've got some kind of guru that doesn't know them and they don't know him. And so everything's just this perfect world that you can't mess up because you're not even in the same state where they are. And it all comes down to feelings and emotions, not what thus saith the Lord. But anyhow, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to understand, and this is where we're heading with this, we need to understand the difference between the Jew and the church, the Israel and the church. There is such a big difference between Israel and the church. And I'm here to tell you that if you don't rightly divide the difference between the church and Israel, you're going to be messed up in so many different doctrines. You're going to be claiming promises that do not belong to you. And then when the promise doesn't come to fruition, you're going to think that either something's wrong with you or something's wrong with the Bible. You're going to think that, well, God didn't come through. He didn't keep his promise. You're going to think, well, I didn't have enough faith. 
You're going you're gonna to potentially be messed up when it comes to the tribulation period, when it comes to speaking in tongues, when it comes to, how, you know, are you saved forever and eternal security? The list goes on and on and on. I'm here to tell you this morning, the more that I've studied this, the more that I've thought about this, every major divisive doctrine in the church today finds its root in the fact that Christians do not rightly divide the word of truth and distinguish the difference between Israel and the church. So how do we rightly divide it? Number one, we've got to divide according to the application of Scripture. Look with me. Uh, you're already in Second Timothy 2. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 16. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All right, let's pause right there. That's a great statement right there. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it came from Him. This is not the Word of man. This isn't the work of the King James translators. This isn't the work of any man. God used men. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 1 that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So all Scripture, Scripture, by the way, is the printed word. It's in script. It's given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What's it profitable for? Let's look at it. For number one, doctrine. No coincidence that the Holy Spirit puts the word doctrine in the first place of priority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Here we have four different applications of every single passage of Scripture. There's the doctrine. What does doctrine mean? Well, it means the primary meaning to a specific person or persons. You know, in the Scripture, there are doctrinal applications in this book that do not apply to us. Absolutely. If you try to apply the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, doctrinally to you, you will be in a whirlwind of mess. I mean, you go right back to the beginning In the very first of the Bible, God said to Adam, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat thereof, for the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. All right? How many of you are looking for that tree in your life? Doctrinally speaking, doesn't apply to me. It applied to Adam. Now, the next thing we have, reproof. The application of reproof. This applies regardless of the doctrine. Hey, I can, I can read and study about the Garden of Eden, and I can see some reproof that applies to me. Hey, are there areas in my life where I have eaten or partaken in something that God forbids? What's the result of that? Condemnation, judgment ultimately death if it's not repented of. And then you have the third application. You have correction. What's that? That's the solution to a problem. Hey, aren't you glad that this book right here has solutions to our problems? 
hey, I can read about things that were not doctrinally written to me, and I can find that God's got answers to my problems. He's got solutions. And so the entire Bible is not written doctrinally to me, but it still has either spiritual, practical, or historical application. And then, of course, uh, the last area, instruction in righteousness. Uh, I would put that under the category of preventative maintenance. Brother Ralph, you know how important preventative maintenance is. It's one thing, I'm, you know, if, if my car's broke, I hope I can get it fixed. If I can, I'm glad I can get it fixed, especially if it doesn't cost me too much. But you know what is even better? If I can do something and spend a few dollars today that will keep me from having to spend thousands of dollars later, that would be pretty wise for me to do, would it not? And so I can read about Israel and I can read about different time periods that don't necessarily apply to me and I can learn some things that will help keep me out of some trouble. That is dividing according to application. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. This is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus speaking. Now let me ask you a question. If Jesus said it, doesn't it doctrinally apply to me? Absolutely not. Now, keep in mind, I said doctrinally. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, They that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Wait a minute, preacher. I thought I was eternally secure. That sounds like Jesus is saying that I'm not. Well, what you've got to rightly divide is you've got to figure out, all right, if that contradicts with the Apostle Paul was teaching, then maybe there is a division. Maybe Jesus wasn't talking to the church. Maybe he was talking to the Jew. Here we have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and uh, so forth. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. And notice all of these conditions that Jesus is teaching. If you're going to go to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying you're going to have to have these qualities in your life. Have you ever been amused at how politicians will quote some of these verses in their political speeches and take them totally out of context? I mean, totally out of context. I've, I've had times where I've yelled at the television when some politician has quoted something that they don't know what they're talking about. And I'm just like, no, that's not what that means. No, I don't get that angry. 
but, but I feel that that way. It's like, no, you are deceiving people. Don't use the Bible to say what you want to say. If you're going to use the Bible, you better be telling people what God has to say. And so here we have this Sermon on the Mount, and you know what? The doctrinal application of what we just read is personal righteousness for those who are in the kingdom of heaven. Now you say, well, kingdom of heaven, isn't that, isn't that I'm going to heaven? Hey, if you study the Bible and you find out what the kingdom of heaven is, it's not in the third heaven where the throne of God is. The kingdom of heaven is when heaven is ruling and reigning here on earth. When Jesus comes back, King of kings and Lord of lords, and heaven is sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning the whole world, there's going to be no election. No election whatsoever. Hey, this November, hey, wouldn't it be awesome if it was our last vote? Or even better, if we didn't even get to vote, you know, Rapture us out of here. Oh, I never get to vote again. Hey, it's okay. Uh, By the way, I'd vote for Jesus. Would you? I voted for him a long time ago. So Jesus is going to come back. Heaven's going to be ruling here on this earth for a thousand years. And listen, if you try to take this teaching and put it into the church age, you're going to have contradictions all over the place. And you know what happens is when people see apparent contradictions, they think, well, I can't understand the Bible, so I might as well just quit and quit studying it and quit reading it because it just doesn't make sense to me. But if we rightly divide, then we can understand the context all through this. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so we just got to figure out what does he mean by the kingdom of heaven? you Read Matthew, you read the book of Revelation, you can read all kinds of different passages in the New Testament and figure out that there's a kingdom coming and it is not the church age. So we need to uh, rightly divide according to doctrinal application. Uh, Secondly, the Sermon on the Mount has a spiritual application. What is God saying to me personally? You know, if In the kingdom of heaven, if meekness is blessed by the Lord and the Lord says, these are the qualities that I want you to have, just because we're not in the kingdom of heaven, I think that meekness is a good thing, don't you? And so God can speak to my heart and say, you know what? You need to cool your jets, buddy. You're getting just a little bit cocky. You're just getting a little bit self-sufficient, a little bit forward. You need to just settle down here and be a little less stubborn and a little more pliable. Isn't it amazing in this day and age of the the professional athlete, how that people value confidence so much that they think, oh, that person, they're, they're awesome. And the people that God values are the people that are a little more simple, I don't mean simple in a, I just mean this, a, a simplicity in their life that just follow the Lord, plain brown wrapper, not trying to get attention, not seeking for glory, 
just trying to do the right thing and follow the Lord. That's what the Lord values. And then, of course, the practical application is that God will bless these character traits. And so if I rightly divide the word of truth, I don't have to choke on what the word of God is saying. I don't have to ignore it. I can understand what's going on, and it will help me to fall in love with the Word of God. But not only that, it will help me to make personal application um, from the Bible. All right, uh, secondly, secondly, and I, I, I don't know if I'm going to get through this study today, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Secondly, divide according to the type of language. There are... You know, the, the language is a very complex thing. And if you're not familiar with other languages, then something that you need to recognize is that not every language says the same thing the same way. I mean, you, you've got certain languages that you can't just take an English word and replace it with a Spanish word and keep everything in sense, it won't make any sense in Spanish. And all of the languages have a certain element of that. The the order in which you say words, the way that you communicate a particular... You know, the Hebrew language is totally different than the English language. It is not a technical language. It is more... Uh, if, if you had to say... Uh, kind of categorize the difference between Hebrew and English, you'd say English is more technical. Hebrew is more of an art form. I mean, there was just certain different words and the way that they would say things that was more of an art form in communicating a thought or an idea. If you look up that word in the dictionary, you'd go, how in the world do they come up with that meaning? Well, in their language, they understood perfectly the usage of that word and how it means. And so we've got to understand and rightly divide according to the types of language. And I'm not talking about the different, you know, Greek, Hebrew, and so forth, the way that the thought or idea is being communicated. Number one, there is figurative language in the Word of God. Figurative language. We use figurative language all the time. I mean, I, I, could, I could give you all kinds of examples, and uh, different cultures use language in a different way. Um, I remember, um, Brother Ben, I remember this like it was yesterday when I was still in Idaho, and Brother Ben and I would talk on the phone, and we'd be talking about something, and I'd say, you bet, you bet. And he'd go, what are, you, what are you betting on? What are you betting on? <laughs> He didn't know what, he didn't understand that phrase because it was different in Australia. And then, of course, um, Brother Ben's got some really weird ways of saying things, too. And, I mean, different cultures say things different. I, my wife said this morning, she said, you got something on your glasses. And I looked at it, and it was just a little piece of, like, crumb. And I looked at it, and I go, I go oh, it's a sleep seed. She said, what? What's a sleep seed? And I go, well, you know, the, the crust in your eyes. And she said, where'd you get that terminology? I said, I grew up with it. She said, I've never heard that in my life. She didn't. She thought I was crazy. She said, I'm looking that up. I said, fine. She looked it up. You know what a sleep seed is? It's the crust that's in your eye when you wake up in the morning. 
when's she ever going to learn that I'm always right? <laughs> Figurative language. John 6.53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now, aren't you glad that's figurative language? Now, the, the disciples and those to whom Jesus was preaching, they didn't understand it was figurative. They're like, what? What's he talking about? But Jesus was conveying a very literal truth, a very important truth, but he's using figurative language in order to convey that. Now, the Catholic Church has really, really choked on this particular concept. They have not rightly divided the word of truth and divided the difference between literal and figurative language. And so obviously they could not actually cannibalize Jesus Christ because, well, he's not here. He resurrected, right? So they couldn't actually cannibalize him. So they created a doctrine to where they made a connection between what Jesus is saying here and communion or the Lord's Supper when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Then he said, here, drink, this is my blood which is shed for for um, the remission of your sins and so forth. I'm paraphrasing. And so they, um, they uh, erroneously made that connection and assumed that they could bless by Latin incantations the wafer and the wine and actually turn it into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But you know, Jesus isn't talking about communion here. And he's not talking about cannibalism. How do we know that? Because always the answer is found in the context. Just a few verses later, 10 verses later in John 6.63, when they're all just kind of going, what? what's he saying? What's he teaching? He says unto them, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking to you about something physically that you are going to be putting in your mouth. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so what is Jesus saying? He's, he's letting them know that spiritually speaking, you're going to have to partake of the body and of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I did that when I got saved. When I asked Jesus to be my Savior, He came inside of me. Amen? He came inside of me. I partook of Him. It's as if I I let Him inside of me as if you were to eat or to drink something. And so that is figurative language that Jesus is giving to communicate a very literal and important truth. And then secondly, there's symbolic language in the Bible. Symbolic language. Revelation 9, verse number 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. Now, scientifically speaking, we know that our sun is just one of gazillion stars in the universe. And that the earth, I mean, you're comparing... 
You're comparing a B, probably use this key more often than anything. So that's an important key. God gives us not just an important key to understanding the Bible, but He gives us the key to understanding the Bible. As believers, God expects us to understand His Word. As believers, God expects us to be mature, not children tossed to and fro and believing everything that everybody says. I wonder how many people that are faithful to church in America today, as we speak, are sitting in a church service, and the only thing they really care about is getting a good feeling while they're in that service, either enjoying the music in 12 and verse number 1. Here's another passage of Scripture that I know the Roman Catholic Church gets wrong, and many others get wrong as well, and we can see the answer right within the context. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Let me pause right here. How many of you remember Joseph's dream? Joseph had a dream, and he said that the sun and the moon bowed down before me and the twelve stars also. Joseph being the son of Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, a nation. So the Bible, I'm rightly dividing, I'm making connections between Scripture and Scripture, and it says here that, and she, being with child, cried travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. There appeared another wonder in heaven, behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. This is not talking about Mary. The woman here is not Mary. The woman here is the nation of Israel. And if you'll recall, the dragon, Satan, that he is the God of this world, little g, You'll recall he told Jesus at the temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, one of the things he tempted him with, he said, look, he took him up on the pinnacle of the temple and he showed him all of the kingdoms, uh, not the pinnacle, he took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said, I'll give all of these to you. The kingdoms of this world, the political system, the nations, These are all under the power and influence of Satan himself. That's why I don't, you know, I get all kinds of stuff, emails and people pass me books and pamphlets and stuff about all the conspiracy theories that go on. I don't get all worked up about them. Hey, is COVID-19 a conspiracy? Probably. I I don't know. Do you know? Well, I I saw this video. Hey, I've seen a lot of videos that look convincing. But I don't worry about it because I know there's a conspiracy behind everything, and it's Satan himself. But God doesn't tell me that I'm supposed to be focusing on Satan. I'm supposed to be keeping my eyes on Jesus Christ. So whatever's going on out there, let it go on. You can't stop it. 
Anybody, any, anybody here ready to overthrow Satan? Hey, I can resist him, I can, and he'll flee from me, but we're not going to defeat him. So what we need to be doing is focusing on what God told us to do. Preach the gospel. Live righteous. Separate from this world. Then study to be quiet and to do your own business. Pray for those that are uh, the kings and those that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. These are what God said we're supposed to do. We need to focus on that. Satan be just fine if he can get all of God's people running all of these tangents and getting them absorbed in conspiracies and this and that. Listen, if you've been all wrapped up in COVID and uh, Black Lives Matter and all of the stuff going on, and you spent more time reading news articles about that than you've been reading the Word of God, then shame on you. you don't, we don't need to know all of that stuff. We need to know what God has to say about it. So this woman that's clothed with the sun, this is Israel. And the context almost always makes figurative language clear. Now, I'm not going to finish my study, so you can relax. I'm close to being done, but I do got to give you a couple more things here. Sometimes the meaning of figurative language is given right in the text. You know, in Revelation 17.1, God tells us that John saw a woman, a great whore that was sitting upon many waters. Now, that is a symbolic language that's describing something. John's seeing something that is beasts and water and so forth, but it's representative of something that is really going on on this earth. It's an entity. It's a nation, or it's I believe it's a church. We don't have time to get into that. But it says that she's sitting upon many waters. You read down to verse number 15, and the interpretation is given. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. All right, so the symbolic language is described. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean every time you see the word water in the book of Revelation or the Bible, it doesn't mean it's always talking about people's languages, nations, and tongues. You've got to keep within the context. And then, listen, uh, usually usually you can cross-reference and compare verses. Let me give you this as a caution. Sometimes symbolic language is clear, and sometimes it's a little obscure. Now, in the book of Revelation, it talks about these beasts coming out of the bottomless pit with hair of a woman, long hair, I mean teeth like iron. They've got tails that sting and hurt men for months. I mean, these are nasty, nasty creatures. I had a coworker uh, years ago that got right with the Lord and started reading the Bible. And he got all excited. He said, hey, Randy, i got to show you this. And he showed me that verse. He said, I know what that is. He said, it's Apache helicopters. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I thought, well, I'm just, I was excited that he was reading the Bible and he was excited about it, but I just kind of go, oh, oh, how do you handle that? I don't, <laughs> so uh, I, I don't remember exactly what I said. I didn't agree with him. But uh, I tried to be very diplomatic not to quench his zeal. But 
I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know out of the book of Revelation, but I know one thing. Those ain't Apache helicopters. Blackhawks maybe, but no. Listen, if it's a literal creature, then God will make it clear. And so there's symbolic language. Just be careful. Be cautious. And don't jump to some conclusion that is not clear. We always need to base that which is obscure in the Bible on that which is clear. And by the way, there are so many things in the Word of God that are crystal clear that we need to put into practice in our life that we really don't have time to run all of these tangents and try to break the Da Vinci Code of the Bible like some people think that they're supposed to do. And then number three, there is literal language, and that's most of the Bible. I'll give you an example here that most people wouldn't consider literal, but Jesus said in Luke 18.25, for it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. I've heard theologians try to two-step around that. Well, the eye of a needle is describing a place where two rocks are really close together and the camel couldn't fit through, and I've heard all of that. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying exactly what he's meaning, exactly what he said. You try to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle. I know that there's different sized needles. Some have bigger eyes than others, but... I don't know of any needle that's got an eye that big. And camels are pretty big, ugly creatures. How many of you went to Israel and rode a camel? Ugly, despicable creatures. They're kind of funny, though, the way their mouth moves. He's saying that's how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Which, by the way, he said afterward, he said, with man it's impossible But with God, all things are possible. So there's literal language. Some affirm that since some of the Bible is symbolic or figurative, then we can't know the meaning for certain. Some think that it's all symbolic or figurative. This is a great, great error. Well, folks, I'm out of time here tonight. I didn't get to the conclusion of this particular message. But one thing that I hope that you have seen here today... And we'll talk more about it next week. We'll talk more about Israel and the church. Hopefully give us a solid foundation so that we can discern between all of these controversial issues. And they're out there. And more and more, I believe, are coming our way. The Internet has just made all of these winds of doctrines more available. And it is so vital that we learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. I hope you've been reading your Bible regularly. I hope that you've been studying it. I know many of you have. I've heard testimonies that have been so encouraging. Listen, every day, spend some time in the Word of God. When you come across a passage of Scripture you don't understand, then either study it out or ask some questions. And if the answer doesn't doesn't clarify it to you from the Scripture, then just keep on looking and keep on studying. I close with this thought. We're not going to have an invitation this morning, but I close with this thought, and I hope that you'll let this echo in your heart and in your mind. We have 
a wonderful book right here. A wonderful book. Let's read it. Let's love it. Let's understand it with our hearts and with our minds.